We talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. Small towns may make small minds, but not much escapes the memory of a little place. Anything unusual is collected, poured over, run through the grapevine, sipped on slowly in the coffee shops, Pounded down greedily at the bars, what little does go on stands out, and as a result, is maybe more appreciated. But when something terrible happens in such places, it tends to get stored away, like a skeleton in the back of a closet that a whole community works to pile junk on top of. It's whispered about. It becomes that thing that happened that thing that we don't like to speak of, out of respect for the family. When 11-year-old J.C. Lee Dugard was hit with a stun gun, then stolen from roadside in June of 1991, while walking to the bus stop in her favorite pink outfit, tights and a t-shirt with a kitten on it that soon would be burned by her self-appointed owners, the people of Myers, California, a small town if there ever was one, took notice. They hung missing posters and pink ribbons all over their little spot on the map, a quaint community that sits in the Sierra Nevada on the edge of South Lake Tahoe, known for being a former stagecoach stop and trading post, known as a nice place to veer into for lunch while traveling the Tahoe Basin, known, maybe most of all, at least to crime buffs as an old mob hangout and A little more recently as the area where two little girls, both only midway through their elementary school years, called home before they were kidnapped. Not together, mind you, no. One was taken and the other grew up in the vacuum of that first theft before being sucked up herself by a more sinister force, freak of nature. When nine-year-old Crystal Stedman vanished in March of 2000, J.C. Lee Dugard had already been missing for a decade. J.C. had slipped through the cracks and from the minds of most, save those who repeated her name over and over in the coffee shops, bakeries, and casinos of Lake Tahoe, a lake so deep you may never recover a body from it if it's weighed down properly. Just ask the mob. They loved the place. It sure knew how to keep a secret. The lake, not the people so much. People can't keep their mouths shut about certain things. There were many who felt such a fate as being dropped in the lake could have befallen Meyer's lost little girl, J.C. Many who thought her stepfather or father had killed her, perhaps took a page out of the mob's book and fitted her with concrete booties. J.C. Lee Dugard is a household name today, but have you ever heard mention of a Crystal Stedman? The other little girl from Myers who went missing. I doubt it. 
I had it myself until my friend crime reporter F.T. Norton brought the case to me, plopped it in my email, provided all kinds of help clearing the junk out of the closet to see this skeleton clearly. Suggested it may make for a compelling episode, one that most haven't heard before, one people should know about. I wish I had never learned the name Crystal Steadman. I wish she were out there somewhere, enjoying her late 20s. Enjoying them that much more than most as a result of learning that J.C. Dugard, the fifth grader who'd gone missing from her hometown just before Crystal was born, the girl who'd haunted the shadow of every little girl who grew up in the Lake Tahoe area, had made it back, back out into the world from the sheds where she'd been raising children, children born from her relentless rapes over the near two decades J.C. had spent in captivity. Beautiful, bright, happy children whom she loves on a level likely superior to many parents because of the circumstances into which they were born. A dark place where before they came their mother had loved a spider on the wall near as fiercely. That had been J.C.'s only commodity, love. And it hadn't mattered where it was spent as long as she could put it to use somewhere. On a spider, even, as she sat in her lonely fuck. And when those children came, they were showered with that love, coated in a protective layer of it. J.C. nurtured them as best she could in those soundproof sheds where they were confined. And now that she and her children are finally free, the now famous, still relatively young woman has continued to find the strength to be an example. J.C. is not broken or defined by her circumstance. We all know her story, the story of J.C. Lee Dugar, because despite all the horrors that occurred between her disappearance and miraculous reemergence, she is a success story. She is an absolute inspiration, and you can stick your Stockholm Syndrome up your ass. She managed to not only keep herself alive, but two kids as well, in hell. The only way out is further in sometimes. You have to go deep to reach the heart of a devil. She did what many never could do. But Crystal Stedman, though she had every bit of fight that J.C. possessed, all of the courage and fierceness we all believe we display if ever backed up against a wall, Crystal will never come home, never sit in a chair on national television and provide inspiration with a simple smile, never see her mother again, her classmates, Never go out and enjoy another special weekend lunch. 11-year-old J.C. had been walking to the bus stop without a care in the world, fiddling with her butterfly ring when her childhood abruptly ended. Nine-year-old Crystal had been burning time running around an apartment complex with one care in the world. It was past lunchtime. She was about to check back in as surely it was time to go to the restaurant now, and it was when her life ended. It is easy to tell a story with a happy ending, to remember the little things, like a small town with a small mind often does. But the stories that end in the worst of ways, and the incomprehensible details of them, are stored differently, in a way that almost makes them a secret. I don't enjoy dusting off skeletons, the ones furthest in the back of humanity's closet, but I know that I feel most grateful, most informed when I face the worst of what's out there. And I often find that the little things 
never matter so much as when the big things barge in and trample everything all to hell. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Leno. This is episode 32. Bring me back a girl. March 19th, 2000. A blonde-haired fourth grader named Crystal Stedman is enjoying her last carefree moments on Earth. There are still hours to go before her impending death, but much of that time will be spent in agony, in a place that may as well be hell, and in a position that even the most envious dead would choose not to barter for in exchange for a life restored. Crystal is nine years old, four feet tall, 52 pounds, a little kid. She's ambitious, not overly shy, as evidenced by her recent run for student body vice president at her elementary school in Myers. She's an active kid, plays the flute, sings in the choir, is involved in gymnastics, karate, has recently competed in the Miss Junior Lake Tahoe pageant. Lake Tahoe is where she is right now, in fact exploring a dilapidated apartment complex in Stateline, Nevada, a community on the edge of South Lake Tahoe, California. She is here with her mother, Elizabeth, whose boyfriend lives in the complex, but is packing for a move. Elizabeth Stedman is here with her daughter, Crystal, to help organize and fill boxes. But when the task begins to bore Crystal, she is told to go on outside and get some exercise, meet some friends. This is a community still a little numb from the abduction of J.C. Lee Dugard a decade earlier. Most parents are concerned about the safety of their children, but parents in these parts are a little more so. Crystal is told to check in every hour on the hour, and when she does, she bounces in and out of the steadily emptying apartment as the morning, then afternoon, blows by. Each drop-in she makes, the pile of boxes is a little taller, and the clutter of the living space a little less. Her voice echoes as she returns later in the day. Echoes in the eerie, soulless way unoccupied apartments do. Crystal is getting hungry as two o'clock approaches. Her last stop to check in with mom and grab a drink sees her cheeks flush from playing out in the crisp March air. This is California, however, and, and though it is only around 50 degrees on this day, Crystal had shed her coat under the ever-present sun as she ran around with new friends. She is dressed all in black, Twitty Bird saying hello in yellow from her t-shirt, a pair of lavender shoes with ribbons for laces, the only exceptions. Mom lets her know that they will be leaving shortly, so rather than be back at 3, she should return at 2.30 with her coat. Any disappointment Crystal may have had at knowing her play would soon be over was surely remedied by the promise from her mother that they would be going out for a late lunch. 2.30 comes and goes. Elizabeth Stedman begins to worry as 3 o'clock approaches, then passes. Her boyfriend is spooked himself as 3.30 becomes the next marker. Crystal had seemed to be excited about the lunch date and the long day of play it appeared to be taking a toll on her enthusiasm, the couple give up on waiting and begin to scour the apartment complex. Crystal's mother, Elizabeth, is full of that poisonous kind of dread that parents can taste when their child fails to return, 
She is suspended in a cloud of concern that begins to rumble and crackle with fear as the melodic calls for her child fall dead against bushes and bounce back hauntingly from the sides of buildings. Soon she is running through the complex, doing laps, her boyfriend stopping to speak with anyone he comes across. Elizabeth wants to enter every unit. The time for inquiring and polite questioning is over. She is about to begin a door-to-door search when they finally come across some useful information. A ten-year-old who had been playing with Crystal earlier in the day had seen her talking to a young man from the complex. A nineteen-year-old named TJ. Crystal's mother asks the girl if she knows where the boy lives and soon finds herself at the door of apartment 22, where a father and son well known to the neighborhood kids apparently live. A soft-spoken, bushy-haired teenager soon answers the insistent knocking, and after Elizabeth conveys her concern for her daughter's whereabouts, the young man, TJ, now appearing concerned himself, invites the couple inside. TJ, as I mentioned, was well-known to the neighborhood kids. This wasn't just because he lived in the same complex as many of them. Mainly, it was as a result of TJ working at the complex's boys and girls club. TJ immediately dampens any suspicion Elizabeth may have had about him when he pops on his shoes and, in his soft voice, begins to suggest places they may want to search for the girl. Even though, as Elizabeth would later share, everything seemed to be quiet and calm, her boyfriend insists that they have a look around the apartment, and TJ quickly agrees to this, opening every door, for scrutiny. When they reach the final door at the back of the apartment, TJ tells his surprise guests that it won't be possible to go in there as his uncle is sleeping beyond and does not like to be disturbed. This seems reasonable enough to Elizabeth. They have asked enough of the polite young man. And besides, there is plenty that needs to be searched outside the apartment with his assistance. They retreat from the door and the worried couple exit apartment 22 and head out to comb the area with their new guide, TJ. Last name Soraya, it has been learned. And initially it feels inevitable that he will solve this mystery. But the search, eventually, comes up empty. Well, not entirely. At around 5 p.m. they discover Crystal's coat on the back of a car and... With this disconcerting item clutched in her fist, Elizabeth Stedman finally concedes that something may have happened to her daughter and soon finds herself dazedly gripping a phone along with the coat, tapping in the dreaded numbers of 911 with her free hand. T.J. Soraya heads back to apartment 22. The space he shares not with his uncle, that had been a lie, but with his father. The deception is a little strange. Maybe he had lied to justify not knocking on the door. A boy and his uncle may not have that kind of relationship, where waking him up would be a usual occurrence. An uncle might be grumpy and demand more privacy from his nephew than a father would of his son. Regardless of what the intention, the lie worked to get the people out of the apartment. And now TJ knocks to see if his father needs any help. With the little girl everyone's looking for. They need to get her out of here. 
Now, before we open that door, let's get to know this father and son duo. Let's properly introduce you to the living occupants of apartment 22. The dead we have unfortunately already met in the beginning. TJ and his father are unnaturally close. We know the father for the moment as the man behind the door, ruining a little girl, but his name is Thomas Soraya Sr., the T of his son TJ's name standing for Thomas. But anyway, the man behind the door ruining a little girl is who we should start with here. Thomas Sr., TJ's father, is a... Strange cat, a deranged cat, and like with most of us who end up as sadistic, narcissistic, sociopaths, psychopaths, his childhood was pretty nasty. The sweat-soaked animal doing unspeakable things to a little girl beyond this door, a door that looms in front of us like a red-hot stovetop. You just want to touch it. Those coils are so attractive, so seductive somehow. This door... We should walk away from it. No? All right, all right. His childhood was pretty bad. Not as bad as the one he's brought to an end beyond this door. But pretty bad. This is my way of warning you, by the way. It's pretty bad behind this door. Thomas Rice Sr. was born on January 27th of 1961. By the age of eight, he was molested by his stepbrother, Ronnie Mazingo a dog of a human being. At the age of 10, Ronnie would molest a little girl and beat her with a rock, an incident that sent him to juvie pretty early and served to spark the lured imagination of his stepbrother, the boy who became the man beyond this door. At the age of 18, Ronnie followed a 14-year-old girl from a Sacramento mall, put a knife to her throat, and dragged her into a vacant field where he sodomized, raped her. Afterward, he'd let her go when she lied and said she wanted to see him again. Smart. She went to the police. He was sent to prison. These are details I'm just implementing on the fly here. I didn't know I wanted to talk about the man behind this door's stepbrother so much. Stalling, perhaps. Holding my hand above the burner. So here's the good stuff. The bad stuff, really. But, you know, the juicy bits. What makes this man behind the door with an annihilated little girl continue to stay in there, tinkering with the horror he's wrought? Thomas Soraya Sr. was possibly born from this scene I'm about to speak out to you. So I don't know. You know, listen up, I guess. When Ronnie Mazingo was released from prison for some reason on August 20th of 1979, he had a mission in mind. Two weeks before his release, he'd watched a movie called The Brotherhood, starring Kirk Douglas, recently ripped, where a character is tied up in a creative way. So Mazingo is out of prison, and he has a head full of steam, or in this case, scene from The Brotherhood, a scene where Kirk's character set up a man's slow, agonizing death. Here's a quote from Mazingo, straight out of the book Like Father, Like Son by Robert Scott. 
The rope was then strung from the man's neck to his legs, which were arched above his back. As the victim's legs slowly dropped, he strangled himself to death. End quote. This was something Ronnie Mazingo decided he was going to bring into the real world. His stepmother, the man behind this door's biological mother, Janny, 40 at the time of her stepson's release from prison, was going to be the victim. Mazingo hated her for the beatings she doled out on him as a child and decided he'd like revenge. Five weeks after his release, Mazingo rode a bike to his father's house, knowing his stepbrother was likely at school and his father was at work and found his stepmother home alone as he'd hoped. He entered the house on invite from Janny and immediately overwhelmed her, dragged the man behind this door's mother into the man behind this door's childhood bedroom and shut the door and beat and raped her. Then, as she lay moaning on the floor, used a wire from his brother's Atari system and another from an alarm clock to reenact the scene from that Kirk Douglas movie, Rest in peace. He sat on the bed and watched his stepmother slowly give in to her predicament and strangle herself. Mazengo then put a towel over the dead woman's face and rode happily away on his bike. Forty-five minutes later, the boy who had one day become the man behind this door returned home and discovered his dead mother, whom he idolized, hogtied and strangled, still warm to the touch. His stepbrother, Ronnie Mazingo, would be arrested for the murder, and Thomas Sarias Sr. would go on to become a monster, fueled by this horrific circumstance, inspired by it, somehow. The man behind this door would marry young, and soon after his mother's murder, his wife, Fran, would later say about their twisted sex life, quote, We weren't having the right kind of sex, according to him, like sodomy he wanted. I didn't want to do it. I tried it a few times to please him, but it hurt and I didn't like it. She also related, he wanted me to urinate on him. I told him, no, no way. That's not my thing. But then he would insist and say, you do it if you love me. Sometimes I would just do it to get him off my back. End quote. or, 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 Or on my back. And then off my back. That's not a quote. (coughs) (coughs) Rape's not funny. Even marital. (coughs) They would have a child together, TJ, the boy in front of the door with us here. TJ knew from a very young age that his father wasn't right, but he loved the man, wanted to please him, so he went along with the molestations and odd requests that began from as early as he could remember. His parents split eventually, and TJ is alienated from his mother by his dad, who tells him constantly that his mother is a selfish bitch and that she never loved or wanted him. Convinces the young boy that he must stay loyal to the only one who truly cares for him. Prove his devotion back by performing sexual acts with dad, engaging in strange behavior. Strange behavior, to say the least. One incident went like this. TJ had just finished having a bowel movement one afternoon when his father barged in, pushed him off the toilet, scooped up the shit with his hand and took a bite out of it, swallowed, and said to his wide-eyed son that this was symbolic of their close connection. He would later call his boy into the washroom and suggest TJ return the gesture. Reluctantly, the young man we stand here with before this door complies. 
and eats his dad's shit. This is but a small chapter in the sordid history of the Sarai's, junior and senior. One reason why it's so difficult for TJ to knock on the door is that he knows what's happening beyond. He knows that whatever it is, it must be horrendous, especially by the smell that's coming up from underneath here. The smell of death. And now, standing here, he's sure he's too late to join in on whatever is happening to the little girl, and there was happened. He, joining in had always been a natural when it came to his father's sexual exploits, but apparently, this one was only for Dad. He'll just have to masturbate on the panties or with the panties of this nine-year-old girl later. Fuck, this is horrible. <clears throat> Fuck on. It's going to be back. It's going to be back. You asked for it. Masturbating on a nine-year-old's panties. All right. Dead nine-year-old. Fuck. When TJ had reached puberty, the man behind the door, his father, had invited TJ into his bedroom often to share his new wife. Lupe. A quote from TJ on this quote. After I got to bed one night, my dad came and asked me if I wanted to join them, have sex with him and Lupe, and I went ahead and agreed. She was a little big, big breasts, but I was attracted to her. I found her a little bit sexy. I just kind of got into bed with him and started feeling her breasts and stuff. It just kind of went from there. I sucked on her breasts, and I went down on her and made her have orgasms, and I eventually fucked her. My dad was holding her hand. Later, he asked me if I enjoyed myself, and I said, I, I'd be interested in doing that again, end quote. <laughs> it is all a setup, however. Soraya Sr. was paving the way for his son to feel obligated to share with him as well. It's not long before TJ begins bringing girls home. One has a meth addiction, and Soraya Sr. takes advantage of this, supplying his son and new girlfriend with money for their habit in exchange for being allowed to join in on their sex life. Eventually, TJ gets away and begins his own life. His father, now without a source to procure susceptible young women to feed his perverse needs, begins making lewd phone calls to women he works with. Here's a few excerpts from recordings that a co-worker named Sarah made to give you a further bad feeling of what may be happening or has already fucking happened beyond this door. Here's a few quotes uh, from, you know, some horrible shit that this guy said. But uh, Fucking, I don't know, quote. Don't be concerned with figuring out who I am. I'm going to bash your fucking head in. I'm watching you. What do you want me to do to you? End quote. Quote. I want to smell your cunt. Your boyfriend doesn't have to know. I want you real bad. I'm going to follow you home to see where you live. I have to go back to work now. End quote. Quote, we could do this the easy way and you can cooperate or we could do it the hard way and I rape you. Either way, I get what I want. Sarah custom at this point of this particular call and Thomas Soraya Sr. responded, quote, I like it when you talk dirty. See you outside. End quote. Quote, hello, Sarah. You smell good. I want to smell you down there. End quote. Quote, I just need to be raped inside my, I'll see you later, end quote. Last one. Quote, Sarah, you're beautiful. I want to put my face up your butt. End quote. 
I read you these quotes, uh, not to be funny or completely fucking uh, insensitive, but to give you a better idea how horrible this man is, as I'm unwilling to read Soraya's fantasy, this, his fantasy fiction. Th- this case is um, maybe a little loopy. Uh, and uh, it's really not going well. Is it? <laughs> but man, I like like I, I I can't read you the fantasy fiction. I had to read you that. I'm just so sick of losing listeners and, and coming off as an edge lord in exchange. It's it's a real lose lose. I'll tell you that he had strong fantasies about raping and ruining little girls, little girls that he, he probably uh, molested over time. And a lot of the stuff that I don't want to read to you, I think he actually did to some little girls that never reported him. Um, you know, I'll tell you that. Often he spoke of using them as a, quote, human toilet. This is a man who thought it'd be nice, you know, generous, to allow his son TJ, whom we still stand here with in front of this door, uh, by the way, reluctantly, uh, him looking a little more excited than nervous, to be honest. Um, He allowed his son, all right, he coerced, coerced his son, maybe is a better word, to have at his ass whenever the mood struck. It was like this. It was like, hey, TJ, let's have a little talk about the birds and the bees. You know, 12-year-old TJ, see my butthole here? When, when your little ding-ding gets hard, I want you to know it a, has a nice, warm place to go and feel better. Right here in your father's butthole. Okay, buddy? This is the stuff. And uh, hopefully that appeases those of you who rolled your eyes at my little censorship over the stuff that I didn't want to share earlier. Okie dokie. <laughs> All right, where were we here? Where were we? On June the 4th of 1998, Sarai Sr. was arrested for harassing phone calls, convicted and sentenced to 75 days in jail. His son TJ, after being busted for bad checks in the spring of 1999 and growing tired of prostituting himself to supply dope for his girlfriend, decides to move back to Nevada and live with his dad. Soon after, his father begins demanding that he bring him something to play with, and not one of those filthy tweaker types. Sr. wants something young, something fresh. TJ, not wanting to disappoint, begins working at the local Boys and Girls Club. It's right in the building, actually, and ingratiates himself into the small circles of little kids who are constantly involved in play around this apartment building. He had been hunting for his father, waiting for the perfect opportunity to bring him back a girl. Today, It is March 19th of the year 2000. It's the day TJ had finally come through for his dad. After meeting little Crystal Stedman at the complex, lonely without any obvious guardian anywhere nearby. He'd run home to make sure that this was a good time to perform a kidnapping. That this was still something he was supposed to do. Senior, excited after hearing a description of the nine-year-old, had confirmed his order. Thomas Arias Sr. has loads of horrible material in his room on his computer. Writings he used to vent the horrific impulses that have been running through him since finding his mother hogtied, naked, and dead in his childhood bedroom. Many of the files that are later recovered depict, as I've said, unmentionable, even for me, fantasies he'd had starring a blonde-haired little girl. I'll give you an idea if you want. You don't want it. Do you want an idea? Like scissors, labias, you know? Just... Horrific shit. He collects some duct tape, a few tools of the trade that say, 
Sarai Sr. doesn't want to overwhelm the girl when she enters, so he waits in his room in the back of the apartment. He wants her to feel like she's entering a normal home where a normal father enters a normal kitchen upon hearing that there's a guest. And when he soon hears his cue, the sound of a little girl's soft, curious voice, Soraya Sr. comes out to meet Crystal Steadman, who is wondering where the candy is that TJ promised. TJ shuts off the charm when his father enters, then abandons Crystal, leaves her alone with this mangy bear that has emerged from the back of his cave, exits to give them some alone time, to allow his father to enjoy his meal in peace. Good job, boy. Good man. And now, after this excruciating wait outside of Thomas Arias Sr.'s bedroom door, we are finally summoned to see what became of that meeting, as a deep, wet, and raspy voice bellows out from within, for TJ to assist in cleaning up the incredible mess that has been made as a result of his son's enablement. Why the fuck did you bring this to me? Look what you've done. In case you haven't been scared away yet, I just want to assure you that I'll do my best to get us out of here promptly. Without having looked too close or hard at... Oh, God. Thomas Soraya Sr. is a short, pudgy, chinless man. He appears a little sheepish, like a dog who just ate a birthday cake. On the bed behind him is a garbage bag with half of a small, bloody, and naked body hanging out of it. TJ is told to get a box, and as we stand here in mild shock, I mean, we kind of expected this considering the way the story was headed. TJ exits, then quickly re-enters with a cardboard coffin. Crystal Stedman is dumped into the box. Her injuries are extensive. I'll share that she had defensive wounds on her hands and duct tape marks residue across her mouth the bloody punctures that are all over her body are shallow save the deeper cuts across her throat it's obvious that she had been tortured toyed with an autopsy will later conclude she had been raped in every way imaginable and an enema had been administered there is vegetable matter found fuck okay that's that's enough Despite all the horror in here, every dark, decrepit place our minds are forced to wander, I can't stop envisioning the pause that must have occurred when Kristen's mother had entered the apartment looking for a little girl. Had it been over by then? Or was there still time? Had Crystal been given a moment of hope, a moment's relief from the... I'm not even going to try, try to describe it. this. Like what, what's the word? Horror again? Only to have that last flicker of optimism... Snuffed out, following the retreat of steps, the sound of her mother's concerned voice floating away, then finally muted behind the front door's closing, <clears throat> sealing her, her fate to this fucking monster who sped up the violence to get it done because he knew his window of depravity was closing. TJ transports the result of his completed offering to his father. 25 miles away and over an embankment. He and his red and white blazer are spotted at the dump site. A passerby observes him tossing something over the side of the highway before rushing back into his vehicle. When authorities respond to a call about the suspicious sighting, they soon discover Crystal Stedman's battered body in a trash bag on the side of a hill. 
Their investigation soon leads to tips that direct them to the apartment of Thomas Sarias Sr. TJ had not only been spotted tossing something at the dump site, but carrying a box to his vehicle around the time Crystal was reported missing. He is taken in for questioning, and investigators soon gather enough suspicion about the young man to obtain a search warrant. When they return to the apartment, it reeks of bleach, and they realize that they have made a mistake by not bringing in TJ's father as well. Among items seized and photographed in the childless home were games, toys, dolls, stuffed animals, a treasure trove of violent, sexually explicit writings. Thomas Raya Sr. had a text file that listed young girls' names and their ages and what he likely had done to them. Sr. is brought in. T.J. Seaman is later found on items belonging to Crystal Stedman. Thomas Raya Sr.'s Seaman is found as well. It's found everywhere else. T.J. Soraya is eventually sent to prison for the rest of his life. He will never be released. His father managed to escape before a sentence, likely of death, was able to be handed down. He hoarded medication given to him for depression and falls asleep forever in his cell. A special place in hell for ghouls like the Sarayas. We better hope so, because to let people like this leave the world without knowing that to be a certainty is completely irresponsible, in my opinion. Well, then, what do you propose we do, uh, Mr. Luna? I, I have a very well-thought-out answer to that. It took me years to come up with it. You ready? All right, grab a pen, some paper. Open your mind. All right. We handcuff, then bury them alive. Twelve feet below an unmarked grave. And that's it. It's the best I could do. As close as I can stay to being humane about such a thing after what we just had to endure together. As close as I want to get to becoming a monster myself. As a result of being exposed to one. And that will do it. Thank you for hanging in there. I took a break. Retired. <laughs> Thought I was retired. Thought, quit. Thought I was done with this format. Then the opera was all like, well, you know, we could easily send you back via crime machine vehicle. I can't do his accent. Uh, it's too foreign. But but I miss this. So, so I'm back in a glitch. I just really want to say thank you. If you're still listening after all the upheaval, you know, and let's be honest, uh, confusion, then that means, you know, we're for sure friends. Thank you, friend. For additional content like after shows, slightly early releases, and ad-free content, head over to Patreon and search Crime Machine. The operator and I are planning on creating the greatest $5 tier in the history of Patreon over there. Forget Himalaya, it's been weird as hell and I won't get into it, but disregard my previous calls to migrate to that fucking mountain. Just thanks for listening. Wherever you do, and to further support the show, check out Patreon. Shout out to crime reporter F.T. Norton for our incredible research on this episode. I'll be back next week with another crime machine, and next month with another glitch, classic Dark Topic style episode like this, uh, which will not be about kids. I think. <laughs> it won't be. It's fucking horrible. Until then, big love. Keep those eyes cut. 
Toast-a-toast-a-toast-lock. And stay paranoid. Thank you.